Okay, today on the show, I have got a special guest, a completely different guest than what we're normally, know who we're normally interviewing. This man is not a movie star that I know of. He's not a sportsman, but he is a professor in Harvard. Mr. Avi Loeb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, I'm not allowed to comment on what you just said, but um, uh, there is there was actually uh, a, f- a filmmaker following me in a recent event in Washington, uh, D.C. that uh, I attended two weeks ago. OK, so that's a secret project. Uh, as of now. Yes. OK. <laughs> OK. So you, so this man is a future movie star, potentially. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Okay, so you were born in Israel and then you moved to America. Did you always plan on moving to America to study or how did you end up going there? Not at all. Uh, My life is pretty much uh, a a result of circumstances. I was born on a farm and uh, collected eggs every afternoon. So you can treat me as a farm boy. Yeah, Uh, they're big in Ireland. We have lots of farmers here. Yeah, I should say uh, Ireland is the favorite country in the world for my wife. She actually is writing a book about Um, And, um, you know, as as a child, I was mostly interested in philosophy and uh, the big questions and uh, not at all in science. Um, And um, then um, uh, in Israel, you have to serve in the military at um, age 18. And so um, I was recruited to a program that allowed me to finish my PhD at age uh, 24 instead of running in the fields. I preferred to do that. And that led me into physics. And then I established a project that was supported by the U.S. that brought me to visit the U.S. And then I was offered a position at Princeton under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And after that, I received a tenure appointment at Harvard, the professorship. And at that point, it became clear to me that, you know, I... I'm actually married to my true love, even though it was an arranged marriage, uh, because in astrophysics, you have fundamental questions that used to belong to philosophy, and you can address them uh, uh, with a scientific method. Now, I should say that the most vivid memory I have from my childhood was uh, sitting at dinner and asking a difficult question, and the adults in the room would, uh, in the good uh, case, um, basically... um, pretend that they know the answer. In in the worst case, they would dismiss the question simply because they didn't know the answer. And I thought that by becoming a scientist, I can maintain my childhood curiosity and um, be surrounded by like-minded people. Uh, To my surprise, I mean, I I was able to follow my curiosity and that's what I'm doing right now, but I'm not always surrounded by like-minded people in the sense that many people in science pretend that they are the adults in the room and therefore dismiss a question to which they don't have an answer. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later with what went on in 2017 and the different beliefs from people around that. But at the moment, your day-to-day life, what does that entail? Well, it entails waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning and jogging for half an hour in the company of ducks, rabbits, Uh, wild turkeys and and birds. Um, uh, I enjoy nature because I was born on a farm and uh, I'm very connected to nature, much much more so than to people. I have no footprint on social media. I don't care how many likes I get on Twitter. That's not relevant. Um, What I really try to figure out is nature, uh, understanding the reality that we live in. And um, 
uh, after jogging in the morning, um, I go through my email. I uh, usually do creative work. Uh, I write um, essays. Um, over the past couple of months, just to give you a sense, I wrote 22 essays. Um, um, and then I also write scientific papers in collaboration with uh, my students, postdocs, and so forth. And um, I write books as well. So um, about half a year ago, I published... Uh, my book, uh, Exoterrestrial, which became a bestseller. And uh, since you were talking about movies and, and, and so forth, uh, I had about 30 uh, requests from uh, filmmakers and producers to make a film about my book over the past uh, year or so. Uh, I had about uh, 1,250 interviews uh, for podcasts and uh, all kinds of other outlets and, newspapers, televisions, and so forth. And um, altogether, it was a, a, an amazing experience to see how interested the public is. Now, um, about two, uh, 10 days ago, I participated at a, an event in uh, Washington, D.C. that was at the National Cathedral, um, uh, together with the head of NASA, Bill Nelson, uh, the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haynes, um, Jeff Bezos, the head of... Uh, Blue Origins, uh, founder of Blue Origins, and uh, a theologian uh, from Durham University uh, named uh, David Wilkinson. And it was a very interesting uh, discussion, uh, mostly about uh, the possibility that uh, objects near Earth may have originated from an extraterrestrial technological civilization, which is the latest subject that my book uh, focuses on and that I uh, work on. And, uh, you know, the, when the head of NASA and the director of national intelligence were uh, asked about the most exciting project in their organizations, they said uh, it's classified. But I was fortunate um, to represent a project called the Galileo Project, where I can say the most exciting aspects of it are not classified. And we can talk about them. Yeah. So just when you touched on your book there for a minute and you were approached by various different people to make a film or documentary out of it, you said you got offers, but I take from what you're saying is you didn't accept any of them. Would that be fair? Um, no, I mean, uh, I, I didn't decline all of them. Let's put it this way. Uh, okay. And I should say um, the book was translated to 25 languages. Um, so altogether there was... Um, a lot of um, enthusiasm from the general public. Um, and uh, that became clear when I went to Washington. That was the biggest, uh, the first public event uh, since the pandemic started that I attended outside of the Boston area. And as I left the taxi, as I opened the door and went out, uh, uh, someone approached me and said, are you Avi Loeb? Uh, can I get a photograph with you? And then when the event ended, there was a line of about 50 people standing up, uh, waiting patiently to tell me how excited they are uh, with the Galileo project, how meaningful it is for them. Uh, and uh, we can talk more about it. But this is a project that was established just a few months ago after mm -hmm. a few very wealthy individuals, billionaires, um, visited the porch of my home uh, they were inspired by my book, uh, Exoterrestrial. And uh, within a few weeks, I had about $2 million that allowed me to establish the Galileo project. And uh, this project uh, uh, aims to 
study objects near Earth and figure out whether there are equipment that was sent into space by other civilizations, just like the spacecraft that we sent out in the form of uh, Voyager, uh, New Horizons, so forth. There are five of them that we sent out of the solar system. And so um, the Galileo project has two branches. One is to look at unidentified aerial phenomena. These are objects uh, that were mentioned in a report delivered by the Director of National Intelligence to Congress in the US uh, on the 25th of June this year, talking about objects whose nature is unclear. And uh, we want to get high resolution images of these objects using uh, telescope systems, including optical telescopes, infrared sensors, radio sensors, and audio sensors. So basically doing it the scientific way, just like astronomers use telescopes to observe the sky, very distant sources. Here we are looking at very nearby sources. And then the second branch of the Galileo project is to look at objects that enter the solar system from outside uh, that are farther out, not just next to Earth, but uh, within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. The first mm -hmm. such object was discovered in 2017, and uh, it looked very weird. Didn't look like a comet or an asteroid, and it was given the name Oumuamua, which means in the Hawaiian language, a scout, uh, because it was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And can you explain to me the significance of the shape of that item? Yeah, so this object, at first, astronomers thought it must be a rock uh, that came from another star, just like we have rocks in the solar system. These are the building blocks of the planets. And you have some leftover Lego pieces from the construction project of the planets in the solar system. Most of them are in the outskirts of the solar system, the so-called Oort cloud. And, you know, when a star passes by, it can dislodge some of them into interstellar space. And you can imagine the same thing elsewhere, you know, around other stars. And so we expect some rocks to come to us from other stars, uh, but mostly those should be comets, meaning that it's uh, uh, rocks uh, covered with ice. So when it gets close to the sun, the ice evaporates and you end up with a cometary tail of dust and water vapor. That's what we see in comets that belong to the solar system. And uh, this object didn't look like a comet. There was no evaporation uh, around it, no dust or, or water vapor or anything. Uh, so um, it was definitely not a comet of a type that we have seen before. So then people said, okay, maybe it's just a rock, bare rock. But then as the object was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that meant that it has a very extreme shape, uh, most likely pancake-like, uh, like a piece of paper tumbling in the wind. And then, then the object exhibited an excess push away from the sun. And that, uh, I thought, can only be explained if it's as a result of the reflection of sunlight from it, uh, because there was no evaporation of the object that would give it uh, the rocket effect. Uh, um, and so uh, in 2020, just a year ago, September 2020, there was another object that exhibited an excess push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, no cometary tail. It was given the name 2020 SO. And then the astronomers that discovered it with the same telescope in Hawaii uh, realized that it actually came from Earth. It's a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 as part of a lunar lander mission. And we know that it had thin walls, 
and that's why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight no cometary tail obviously uh, we know that it's artificial because we produced it the question mm -hmm. is who produced Oumuamua who do you believe produced it I don't know we just need more evidence and you know I part of the Galileo project is to design a camera on a spacecraft that will fly near a similar object to Oumuamua, the next one we find, and uh, take a close-up photograph because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I wouldn't need to write a book if we had a picture of Oumuamua, close-up picture so that we can see if it has bolts or screws on it, or it looks like a rock. And, um, you know, I would, frankly, uh, personally, if, if we do identify it as a, an artificial object, I would like to actually put my hands on it and press some buttons. I, you know, if, if we do find a, a, an artificial object from another civilization, I would be thrilled because it would be just like, you know, a, a kid in a, in a candy store for me. <laughs> I have the latest um, gadgets. I always enjoy the latest technology, but... Just imagine another civilization that is a thousand years ahead of us or maybe a million years ahead of us. You know, most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. So you can imagine someone that predated us, that produces technologies that belong to our future. And if we find them, we will learn a great deal about, you know, how more advanced we could be. Yeah. In terms of the Galileo project then with uh, the cameras you need and things like that, obviously they're very expensive are they uh not no not very expensive in fact um, each telescope system that we are actually putting together right now um, will cost about 100 200,000 so we could construct maybe 5 to 10 uh, such copies of the first system that we assemble and distribute them in various locations but the hope is to to have hundreds of them and for that we will need about 100 million dollars and uh I have some interest from wealthy individuals, but but we do need to raise those funds in order to accomplish the task. And I should say that's not a lot compared to other scientific projects. Uh, just to give an example, the Large Hadron Collider in CERN cost about $10 billion. And uh, we haven't found new physics from it, uh, except for um, realizing that ideas of the past are correct, like the Higgs was uh, discovered but we didn't find a new um, law of physics a new particle as of yet and we invested 10 billion dollars so i mean obviously it's um, you know when you are at the frontier you're searching in the dark you're not sure what you will find and uh, but all i'm saying is that at one percent of the cost of the large hadron collider we can make a lot of progress on uh, the question are we the smartest kid on the block is there equipment flying near Earth that may represent another technological civilization? And, you know, we just started that search when the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii found uh, this object, Oumuamua. Before that, before 2015, we couldn't have even searched for such a thing, the size of a football field reflecting sunlight. Uh, so we are only now having the instruments that allow us, us to, to search for it. And, you know, there is this joke about, or, or I should say a tale about a fisherman that uh, goes to sea and comes back and says, I discovered the new law of nature. All fish are bigger than two centimeters. 
So someone asks him, how big are the holes in your fishing net? And he said, two centimeters. So the way to think of this, in the past, we've used a fishing net that has huge holes in it. We couldn't found, have found an object like Oumuamua and even smaller objects than a, a football field were, could not have been found. And so now we are starting the search and in earnest. And there was never a, a team of scientists like we have in the Galileo project. We have of order 100 scientists. Uh, there was never such a team constructing telescopes for the purpose of searching for objects from other civilizations near Earth. So it's very exciting. Yeah, it's so a lot of this is down to kind of modern technology and how far we've come. So if we had come this far in technology 20 years ago, there would have been a lot more findings, do you think? I think so. Um, you know, there is this poem by the famous uh, uh, poet uh, Robert Frost, uh, who lived not far from where I live. And um, it's about uh, two roads uh, in the wood, in the woods that... Uh, he took the road not taken, and that made all the difference for him. Now, for me, the road not taken uh, offers a great advantage, because if nobody took that path, there might be low-hanging fruit that you can pick, because nobody went there. And, uh, you know, doing this uh, scientific project, in my, you know, for me, is it, very exciting because we might find things that are easy to find. Uh, nobody took that path because it was ridiculed in the past. People think they know the answer in advance. But my point is, if you don't look through your windows and claim that you don't have neighbors, uh, that will not get rid of your neighbors. And, you know, there is this uh, uh, Fermi paradox, Enrico Fermi, that used to, you know, like 70 years ago at lunch, he was discussing the question of whether there are extraterrestrials with colleagues. And they said, well, it's very likely, like we, we say today, you know, there are so many stars out there. Half of the stars, like the sun, have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So, you know, the, it's huge numbers. Maybe there was or, or there is. Uh, and he said, well, so where is everybody? Now... <laughs> This is a very pretentious question because it's just like saying, nobody is knocking on my door, therefore I don't have neighbors. Well, you should wait because, you know, recorded human history is just 10,000 years old. And that's one millionth of the age of the earth. So, you know, it makes no sense for us to say, oh, nobody is in front of us right now. Therefore, you know, there, we don't have neighbors. Well, first of all, you know, if you have a fishing net with very big holes, you will never catch any fish and you need to use the best instrumentation. Fermi didn't have telescopes that we have today, didn't have instrumentations of the type that we have today. So he couldn't have seen anything. But the other thing is that we have to get active, uh, engaged in the search uh, because why would they have a party in our backyard? I mean, that's presumptuous to think that we are so uh, important in the big scheme of things. But I think a sense of modesty is, is needed because, you know, the play started 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang. We just came at the end and we are not at the center of the stage. So it's not about us. How dare we think that we are the, cent you know, the central players, the central actors. And we should check if there are other actors out there yeah 
just on your book, The Extraterrestrial, um, when you released that, what was the general reaction to that like from the scientific community? Oh, so the, the scientific community has a, a difficulty discussing this subject because, you know, the, the sentence that is often quoted from Carl Sagan is, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But my point is, it's a circular argument. If you dismiss the possibility that an object like Oumuamua was equipment from another civilization, if you say it's a rock, I don't know what kind of a rock, it's a rock of a type that I've never seen before, which is pretty much what the scientific community says, because mm -hmm. uh, the suggestions that were made was maybe it's a, an iceberg made of pure hydrogen so that we can't see the hydrogen when it evaporates. And the problem with that is that such a rock, uh, an, a hydrogen iceberg, would evaporate very quickly and would not survive the journey. So then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen nitrogen that was chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. And the problem with that is there is not enough nitrogen. The budget, uh, the mass budget of nitrogen does not allow for a large enough population of such objects. And then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a cloud of dust particles, like a dust bunny that uh, by reflecting sunlight is being pushed. Well, the problem with that, when it gets close to the sun, if it's 100 times less dense than air, as, as suggested, uh, it will not maintain its integrity. It will be heated by hundreds of degrees and will just evaporate. So um, all of these suggestions were of something that we've never seen before. And that reminds me of a caveman uh, that finds a cell phone. And the caveman is used to playing with a rock all of his life and would say, okay, it's a rock of a type that I've never seen before. So if the caveman would throw it away, that would be the end of it. If you don't seek more evidence, that's the end of it. If you say Oumuamua is natural, I don't care what it is, but it's natural, then that's it. But if the caveman would press a button and record his voice or press another button and record his image, it will become clear that this cell phone is not a rock. And um, therefore, the key here is to be sufficiently intrigued by how unusual Oumuamua was or by the, by the behavior of these unidentified aerial phenomena that was, were reported by the government, by military personnel, you see, uh, to be sufficiently intrigued to seek more evidence, to basically be guided by what we see through telescopes and through cameras. Yeah. Uh, because then it's just like pressing a button. And then we can figure out whether it's a rock or something else. Was this in the Pentagon UAP report? Yeah, so the UAP report was delivered to Congress by the Director of National Intelligence on the 25th of June um, this year. And a month later, uh, I announced the Galileo project. Yeah. And uh, of course, it was inspired by it because a major branch of the Galileo project is attempting to uh, identify the nature of this um, UAP. And uh, recently, a few weeks ago, there was an amendment uh, that was uh, proposed by Senator Gillibrand uh, in the US Senate uh, to establish uh, an office in government, in the US government, that um, will collect all the data available on UAP and try to coordinate between the different sections of government. They don't speak to each other. And moreover, to establish an advisory board that will have 20 members. And three of those members will be selected by the head of NASA. Uh, three of the member, uh, two of the members will be selected by the president of the National Academies of Sciences. 
two of the members by the president of the National Academy of Engineering, and three of the members by the director of the Galileo Project, with whom you're speaking right now. So yes. the Galileo Project is uh, recognized in Washington, D.C., even though I didn't do much lobbying. And this just shows you that uh, the, the idea that we are pursuing makes sense. It makes sense to the public. That's why I got thousands of emails since uh, July of people willing to offer their financial support, their expertise to the project. And that's why there was a long line of people waiting to speak with me after the Washington event. And it's also, um, it, it also makes sense in Washington, D.C., to the politicians and the military personnel that witnessed unusual things. And so I think, you know, given that uh, the academic community is slow to respond to this challenge, it will, my hope is that within the coming months, it will also make sense to my fellow scientists, especially if we find evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt. I think that this story is kind of only beginning, do you? Yes, I think the, the best part is yet to come. And moreover, it's not science fiction, it's science. By the way, I was asked many times, actually in Washington, I sat next to the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haynes, in the audience. And at the time, we were looking, you know, on stage was Jeff Bezos. And he said that he was inspired uh, with his... Uh, space tourism uh, initiative. He was inspired by, by his childhood um, uh, seeing Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And I whispered to Avril, I said, I never liked the science fiction. I never liked the Star Trek because it bothers me to see that the storyline violates the laws of physics. You know, I cannot enjoy it. It makes no sense to me. And she said, I actually did enjoy Star Trek quite a bit as well, just like Jeff Bezos. We need to work on you, she said. But, <laughs> but it's true that, um, um, you know, science fiction is not my cup of tea. I, I don't enjoy it. Uh, I like science and I enjoy fiction. But when you have a storyline that makes no sense, like people are traveling between stars uh, during their lifetime, that makes no sense because, you know, for light, it takes four years to travel to the nearest star to us. And any spacecraft we can imagine will travel, you know, a thousand times uh, slower. So it will take 50,000 years to reach the nearest star. And uh, it's very boring to go to embark on such a trip. I think it makes much more sense to send artificial intelligence systems that are, you know, they, they could outsmart us. They are our technological kids, but they are much better equipped to survive for long journeys uh, you know, we were selected by Darwinian evolution to stay on the surface of this rock that we call our home, Earth. Uh, we should send our technological kids, you know, they will learn from experience through machine learning, just like our biological kids learn at a young age, everything. And then we can send them as, I call it, AI astronauts. You know, just instead of sending human astronauts, that makes very little sense to me. We should send AI astronauts. And if we can imagine doing that, Someone else might have done it before us. And that's why we should check, you know, the neighborhood, the, the, our backyard, to see if there are any AI astronauts out there that came from somewhere else. These are not biological creatures. These would be, you know, they could be made of electronics. 
So while we might see you on the big screen at some point, we're certainly not going to see you in a science fiction movie in, in the near future or any time. No, you will see science. Uh, well, you will see fiction becoming science. That's that's what I can promise you. Yeah. Avi, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for hosting me. It was a great pleasure. Yeah, thank you.